I don't know. Can you? Yeah, I think you can hear me now. I'm, uh, I'm going to do a podcast, but I was listening to this music. It's um, NPR picked the 50 best songs of 1971, and uh, it's quite a list. And um, what's interesting, let's see if I can, here, I need to turn this off. There we go. Um, I mean, 1971 was, you know how they say that you sort of develop your musical repertoire by a certain age. And, uh, and in my case, it's very true. Um, and this was, 1971 was right in the heart of prime time for me uh, in terms of when my musical tastes were established. Um, I was uh, 16 years old, 1971. And uh, uh, listening to all kinds of music. And that was uh, the band. And I didn't know that Bob Dylan was actually singing on that song because it's um, Levon Helm is the, the main singer. And uh, uh, it's also interesting because around where I live, Levon Helm, although he's no longer with us, is a very big presence. Um, there was a, a lot of, obviously, a, a big music scene around Woodstock, and, uh, and the band were, well, right in the middle of it. Their house isn't actually in Woodstock, it's in Saugerties, but it's kind of the same thing. Anyway, um, so many interesting things going on now. I mean, um, I think that, first of all, uh, politically speaking, I think that we're at a point right now where the Republicans are really rubbing our nose in it. This idea that there is no more United States, that attempting to overthrow the government is something that, oh, we put that behind us. and But that they continue to uh, promote the basis, for the, the, the criminally dishonest, basis for this freedom threatening united states constitution threatening i think that we keep doing this is that every time uh the republicans push the barrier back we just kind of like shrug it off and i say well this is like unprecedented we just don't know what to do here and we don't do anything and then we look back on that and it doesn't seem very radical in the you know, a year or two from now that, well, whatever, there is an answer to this. Yeah. And if you just simply follow the Constitution, it tells you what to do. And um, not just the Constitution, but common sense that a government that is half committed to destroying the government is not something that the government has to tolerate. In fact, it can't. It's, it's just, it just can't work. And so really, the right answer, and you know, today was the day that they announced that Facebook uh, would continue to keep Trump off Facebook, and that was the correct decision. Um, and following that, it makes absolutely perfect sense that uh, um, that Congress would expel all of its members who participated in the insurrection, and to participate in the insurrection. One doesn't actually have to have taken arms. Political leaders do this by giving speeches. And at the very least, you've got um, Ted Cruz and Hawley and 
the the senators who voted to overturn the election that day on January 6th, those people need to leave and be prosecuted. And I expect that they will be prosecuted. I think that Merrick Garland is a is not <laughs> he is not scared of the job. He he is recognizes that he's been called on to do historic things and he's doing them. So that's a pretty good thing there. Um, also, Scroll was acquired by Twitter, and I did not see that coming. Uh, in fact, I didn't, and I, and I kick myself for this, I didn't consider the possibility of Scroll being acquired at all. And that, that's just a blind spot, and I, I really try to learn from those. And I would think that by my advanced age, with all the experience that I have with tech, that I wouldn't make this mistake in 2021 <laughs> and fail to consider that there was potentially an acquisition in Scroll's future. Um, because Scroll, um, well, I think we can conclude this now at this point. It, was, it wouldn't have been very smart uh, to have said this. Some things you don't say simply because they help create the, an outcome that you don't want. Um, and the thing that would have been not smart to say before is that, you know, it's Scroll is an independent company and as and only has the the routing around paywalls and uh, subscription, the subscription model, that's their business. And as long as they don't control any content, uh, then they have no future. That would have been the conclusion to come to. I, I wrote about Scroll several times. I never put that down because that could, this kind of thing could easily become self-fulfilling or I'm not that arrogant, but it could help that. It certainly isn't. I wouldn't like it if, if somebody said that about something that I was trying to do that in general, Scroll was an act of support for the open web. And I don't think it was ever uh, particularly had a great potential for profit, nor for any follow-on products. It's kind of like it's a compromise offered to the news publishing industry that if they accepted it, immediately accepted it, it would have been worth doing. Uh, but it didn't happen that way. And um, I expect that they got a lot of interest from the news organizations. They took the meetings with him. They probably said nice things about, you know, because it's a well-implemented product. It's very nice. I'm sure they said nice things about that, but they were non-committal in, in their actions. And this was the kind of thing that either happens immediately or doesn't happen. I think that, I mean, I could be wrong. I, I don't really know. This is just intuitive on my part. But now Twitter has taken it over and... Um, and they've published their vision for it. And, um, well, it's very clear that Twitter is going in this direction that, you know, they want to create revenue for writers and they want to participate in that revenue. And that probably extends to, you know, big publishing companies, but it doesn't sound to me like they're dependent on it. And that's kind of an interesting thing, right? Um, they're not looking at, well, how do we sign the first tier, which would be, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, a few others. Um, these are high flow websites. 
uh, used to be Yahoo was one of the biggest ones. I'm not sure that they are. MSN was, you know, but it's it's the the top, very top ones. The only way that they would get involved with this, in my opinion, is if they were the promoters of it. In other words, if they were offering to their competitors a way to participate in their subscription services. The theory being that with the subscription model isn't going to work for most publications. If that becomes the dominant model for uh, cash flowing in you know, the future, that means it's all going to get whittled down to five publications, maybe, maybe, maybe 10. Uh, but, you know, very few people are going to pay, are going to have 10 or 15 subscriptions when the subscriptions cost up to $20 a month. I mean, let's say five to $20 a month, somewhere in there. How many of them are you going to pay for? And most of them aren't going to get used. That, that's the, you see, that's the thing that's wrong about this. It's not that I refuse to pay for this stuff. I actually do pay for it, and I want to pay more, and I could easily see myself paying several hundred dollars a month reading news. I, I wouldn't begrudge that to myself. I mean, there's lots of things I pay 100 to $200 a month for. It's, it's amazing how many things there are. I, news is that important that if I'm reading that much news then fine, I will pay for it. That's what I'll pay, okay? But with the subscription model, I have to decide in advance, say 12 months in advance, how much I'm going to read from each of the publications. And that's not something I can do. I have no idea. And I don't want to spend on it that way. I mean, you know, it would be like a grocery store. You know, there's like, I don't know, five grocery stores, supermarket type grocery stores within an easy drive of where I live. I live in a place that has lots of good food. And so I've got a lot of choices. I've got the everyday supermarket that, you know, has all the stuff that, you know, basically isn't fresh. And so, you know, fungible, as they say, by, you know, granola at one place, it's going to be the same <laughs> at every other place. The brands might be different, but the freshness isn't really that. Maybe it's a bad example, but nuts or or bottled water or stuff like that that just really you want to buy the you want to go to the place and buy it in bulk and pay as little as possible for certain things right but then there's the gourmet food restaurant i've always seemed to have one and that restaurant supermarket where you can go get good salads and sandwiches and prepared meals and and their produce is top and then there's another place nearby i know i'm rambling <laughs> that has um um that has oh, have a farm. It is a farm. The supermarket itself is a farm, and so behind it is a much is a very large field and some you know I mean, they grow their own food. And so when you go there, you're getting locally produced food in season, and it just doesn't get better than that. These people know what they're doing. They presumably started as a farm, and decided you know that let's just go ahead and make this a what we would call in tech vertically integrated um, supermarket. So there's lots of choice, kind of like that with, with news, right? I mean, um, but I don't decide in advance how many times I'm going to go to one place in a year and then pay for that up front and then decide how many times I'm going to go to, you know, the other one and pay for that up front. It just doesn't work that way. 
and I don't want to do it that way. That sort of takes all the fun out of it because, you know, I don't know in advance how much I'm going to buy at the, you know, at the big box supermarket. I don't know how much versus the, the you know, um, what would this be the right word? I'll think of it later, but, you know, what I mean, the farm, right? It's about the two extremes. I don't know in advance, but so the way it works is when I go to buy the, I mean, this sounds ridiculous if I put it this way, but when I go to buy the farm fresh stuff, I give them the money. <laughs> and when I go to the other one, I give them the money and I don't give any to the farm. I mean, if that's the way it works in the world, why wouldn't it work that way with news? So, you know, right now I'm paying only for two publications, the New York Times and the Washington Post. And everything else I live within the limits of their paywall. And if they give me five free articles a month, then I read five articles in a month. I'm, and it's I'm getting so good at, at rationing that stuff that I actually get to the end of months without ever being to their site once. And that is like a real shame because there are publications that have good stuff that I want to read, like The New Yorker or New York. It's funny, they have similar names, but both of them very different. And I love reading them. The Atlantic has a lot of articles that I like to read. There are, there, are, there are columnists there who I would like to read every one of their columns. Um, but it isn't a subscription. I, it's, I can get by with reading their three free articles in a month. That's not worth paying in advance $100 to them to be able to read their articles. But it is worth paying. Now, I could see, you know, I was talking to say, well, I'm going to pay for pay $200 for this shit. I could easily see that having unlimited access, but yet paid for unlimited access to, say, The New Yorker might get me spending, let's say one month I spent $100 with them because I discovered some element of their archives that I just found fascinating. I just kept, you know, clicking through it and realizing each time I click, you know, that's a dollar, that's a dollar, that's a dollar, that's a dollar, you know. Um, but it may be worth it because I'm liking what I'm reading and that knowledge is worth some amount of money to me. I mean, it's not like I begrudge that. So at the end of the month, I've spent $100. Now I get an email from them that says, hey, you know, we noticed that you just spent $100 with us last month. Uh, maybe it's time to get a subscription. It's a much better pitch, much better than it is right now where they're saying, I'm sorry, you can only read three articles a month unless you commit to giving us $100 for a whole year. Well, I'm not in the mood to do that. But later, you know, if I happen to spend $100 in one month at the New Yorker, then I might be receptive to the idea that, hey, you know, this could save you some money. And that's, I think, the way I like to buy things, you know. So when I discover a new grocery store that has a whole different format from the ones that I've, you know, been using, even though I'm happy with them, I might decide to go there 10 times in a row because I just find so much fascinating stuff there to buy that is, you know, really in, in I'm really into it, interested in it. So anyway, I back to the Twitter acquisition of Scroll. My guess is that they're really going in, that Twitter is intrigued by two things, by Clubhouse and by Substack. And um, which is kind of interesting that they're into like Substack because my sense was they were protecting Medium. That one of the, the big reason why Twitter hasn't evolved 
in an obvious direction, which is to handle, you know, like blog posts. <laughs> Why not? I mean, they handle movies, they handle pictures, they handle polls, they now ha handle audio conferences. Why not blog posts? I mean, it's just an obvious omission. They have got this network for transmitting content and they left out the one that everybody wants. That's got to be deliberate. There's got to be a reason they're doing that. And if this idea that they're protecting the brevity of the format, it just, I'm sorry, it doesn't work. If that's the reason why, then they're idiots. Excuse me, they're fucking idiots. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. They go for movies and they won't, I mean... How does that, how do you explain that? And I find that quite irritating given that this is the stuff that I worry about. And I've been using this product since 2006, which you do the math. That's like, what, 15 years? And in all of that 15 years, I have been wondering why is it that they never opened this door? I mean, at first, maybe I didn't wonder because they didn't understand it because they were text messages. But very quickly, I found it extremely limiting to try to fit an idea into 140 characters. I mean, you can grunt and you can snort in 140 characters, but can you express an idea? Well, there really aren't very many ideas you can express in 140. 280 is better, and they can chain them together now. People sometimes take screenshots of blog posts. It's fucking ridiculous. It's just, it's an embarrassment. On behalf of the tech industry, it's a fucking, I'm saying that word too much. I really am really perplexed by this one. So, but I, and so if the two things they, they're, they like Clubhouse and they like Substack and they've decided it's okay to compete with Medium, which makes the lack of blog post type even more puzzling. So summarize that whole last section. <clears throat> um, so what are they doing? They're, well, they want to monetize the big thing that, that writers like about Substack is that there's money involved, that you can make money there. It's, I believe, probably 100%, not 100%, but it's very much hype, is that you or I could not make money there. You know, I got dragged into something like that a long time ago with the Huffington Post. I was blogging, and every once in a while I had something that I felt deserved more exposure, and I would just copy and paste that over to Huffington Post. I had an account there, and the one time... I had a hit. What they did was they rewrote my article and put it in their space and pointed all flow from my article to their article, which they then put ads on. I mean, that was their business model. They didn't mind me knowing that at that point. Up to that point, they were happy to let me be sort of like casting lines out there to see if I could find any stories, but they were ready to swoop in as soon as I found something. Uh, they were ready to take it over, which meant to me that I think that all of these they're all run by the same people. People move around, the company names may change, but it's the practice of Silicon Valley is consistent across years and years and years. So I think that there's probably something maybe not quite as explicit in Medium, but over, I mean, what Medium start in 2012? So that would be getting pretty close to 10 years. Uh, nobody's made money. It's fair to say nobody's made money on Medium. I mean... Nobody, not medium, not any of the writers. They've tried, they've wandered all over the field looking for a business model. I don't think Substack cracked the nut. I honestly don't. I think the nut they cracked is 
They're fresh, they're new, they haven't failed yet, and they've managed to get a, a big, deep well of venture capital from Silicon Valley. So they can blow money. And that blow, the way they're blowing the money is creating an impression that there's money to be had here because they're spending the money. And people are kind of like glancing in, they know there's something weird going on here, but they're not looking straight at it. They're going, because they're all reporters. Everybody writing about this is somebody who has a huge conflict of interest here. So you can't go by that. But so they found a sweet spot in the hyping of this stuff. They found something that reporters aren't going to expose because reporters want it to be true. <laughs> because they could get a raise now. <laughs> or if they you know really get pissed off at the place they're working, they have the option of going over there and quadrupling their salary. Like... Matty Glazius did, or whatever, something like that. Could have quadrupled, but he was a little too conservative, so he only doubled it. It's bullshit. Things like this are smoke. It's what Silicon Valley is good at doing. They're very not good at delivering value for users. They really, that's, the, that's what they make the juice out of. <laughs> and the whole trick is you have to get so many users crowded into such a small space that it generates heat, and that's what they do their IPO from, and that's when they exit. You know? So that's why there are all these hulks out there, especially in this space, that have made no money and yet have some stock value because there's still some hope. I think that's medium at this point. Medium is probably way down the other side of the curve because we're already living in the post-medium world. That's what Substack is. Maybe, maybe Substack cracked it, but you know what? I don't, I, I, I trust my gut on this shit because it's usually right. If I don't understand something that's in technology and other people say they do, I've found that they don't. <laughs> They're just saying that they do, generally speaking. I have missed some things, it's true, but not many. And, um, and I don't think this is one of them. So, however, Twitter isn't doing what Substack is doing. Or are they? I don't really know. We'll find out. But, uh, inherent, or Clubhouse for that matter. Because, because they're not a startup. Because they've been around for 15 years. Because they're a publicly held company. Because they've been beaten up so many times. But they have such a huge installed base. And through even through all the crap that's float around and in Twitter, they still have a pretty good reputation. So anyway, the other thing I want to talk about is this whole idea of invention. And I know I've talked about it quite a few times in the past, but I want I have a new perspective on it and but it's and it's consistent with everything else that I've observed. So the why do we think first I think the word invent is just completely wrong about everything really. Um, because the myth of invention is just completely wrong. It's just wrong. You know, the idea is, uh, so somebody comes up to you and say, well, Dave, you invented RSS. And I, I go, no, I didn't invent RSS. Um, and I don't know how to put this, but nobody, nobody who was there at the beginning of something new understood much, if anything, about how it would be used. So when you say somebody invented something, let's 
they call it podcasting or RSS or whatever. Let's say podcasting, okay? Well, that would mean you could anticipate everything that's happened with podcasting because podcasting means something today. And in 2000, when the original act of create, the, the earliest act of creation in this thread, even the name didn't exist. What it would be used for didn't exist. Quickly after uh, the idea, the first idea that got this thing started, the technology was wrapped. That is true. It's by, you know, it was, I think, like October, November, somewhere in there of 2000 was the initial meeting in New York. And by early 2001, I'm going to say like February, all of the basic technology of podcasting was locked down. It is still today as it was then. So, yeah, you could say that much was fully realized and could work all the way through where we are today without a problem, and because it did. But how do you get something like this rolling? That was something we had no idea about, and that was what much more work went into that. By rolling, I mean growing. Like what, was, what I was talking about before is, you know, Twitter is something that got rolling. You know, it, it really was rolling right from the very beginning because it was a, a good idea. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Was it an invention? I would be surprised if, if any of them, the, the four guys or five guys or whatever, if any of them would claim that it was an invention. Because, again, what Twitter was on its day of quote-unquote invention, what was invented was nothing like what it is today. And I don't just mean in terms of features. I mean in terms of the sociology of it. The very basic idea of what we would be doing with this thing, what we had done in, up to 2021, was utterly unforeseen and unforeseeable. The thing that, that I would say that it's most like, and I've been saying this for a while, it's most like being a showrunner of hopefully a successful show that runs for many seasons. And you sort of, you know, a showrunner starts out with a basic, uh, what's the right word, sort of, well, setup. Just here's the main character, here's the supporting cast. Here's the, the backstory. How do they get to the place they're at right now? And then, is, then the show itself is, what did they do after that? And if they're interesting characters and the writers are good, so the stories hold your interest and they build on themselves and they go somewhere, then you've got something that's going somewhere. <laughs> like I said, like with Twitter or like with podcasting. You know, it, it had the right set, not the necessarily the only possible set of features, but it had a good set and it worked. But again, the showrunner of, I always think of Breaking Bad as the, so far, the ultimate run show. Although The Wire is great, you know, the countless really great run shows that lasted many seasons, you know. The Simpsons would be obviously the biggest because what is it, it's like, like 30 seasons, Saturday Night Live, another one. Very basic decision was made back at the very beginning of the format. You have a host, guest, a, a guest host, and a music guest, 
star, and you have a recurring cast, and you have a certain set of characters that you've tried out and they work, like, you know, well, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, have layers of characters because there's, like, oh, I don't know. You know, there's Kristen Wiig or Kate McKinnon or Bill Hader. I mean, that's those are characters, right? And then on top of that are the characters that they play, you know. Um, and it, that's the structure of that show, and it works. You can swap in new people. Every week they swap in a new host. Next time, it's going to be Elon Musk is going to be the host. This is going to be kind of interesting. So that's, that's really what this is like. What I do, that's what it's like. You have an initial concept, and from that initial concept, you try to sell a story. When we did podcasting, the, the story was this. It was, people will want to do this. That was, I mean, <laughs> that was also the story of, of blogging. It was also the story of many things that people did not want to do, as it turns out. You know, or how many people want to do it? That's another really good question. In blogging, at, at the outset, when I was first, <coughs> like, just discovering it myself, and how wonderful it was and empowering and how incredibly easy. And, you know, I mean, it was a real moment for me. Why? Because I'm a fucking blogger, okay? <laughs> it's like I call, came up with the term, nat, term natural-born blogger, NBB. And the, my mistake at the outset was, well, everybody's going to be doing this. Look at how much fun it is, right? Nope. <laughs> Because it turns out there aren't that many NBBs. I said too many Bs. There aren't that many NBBs out there. I usually just write NBB. I don't usually say it. It's funny. Uh, there just aren't that many out there. You know? So, podcasting, by the time podcasting came around, I was already chastened by that. I already understood that it probably wasn't going to be for everybody. That it would be for exceptional people that not necessarily best people, but they would be exceptional and that there wouldn't be many of them. And our job was to lower, this is how I felt it was, was to lower that barrier down as low as we could possibly make it so that the technology wasn't an impediment. That I wasn't, I didn't believe that having technical depth or even technical curiosity would correlate with being a natural-born podcaster. So my feeling was we have to drive that technical barrier down, 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 as far as we can get it, so that it lets in as many people as possible. Then the question was, what kind of example are you going to provide people that will get them thinking about what they could do with it? My first thought was, no example. Of course, everybody's going to understand this right off the bat. Yeah, bullshit. <laughs> No, didn't work that way. Everybody was going, I have no idea what he's doing. I don't understand this. There were a few people that did, but very few of them. And I apparently didn't instill that kind of confidence in other people where just me saying this is great wasn't enough to get people to think it's great, you know? I was sending around Grateful Dead songs as a way of proving the technology. That was what we were, that's what podcast, the first podcast was a bunch of Grateful Dead songs. <laughs> Why? Because 
I like the Grateful Dead. And second of all, because I knew that they were very liberal about letting their fans use their music. And I thought they will never object to this. That's the pragmatic side. And then there's the artistic side, which says this idea that they have is very consistent with this idea that I have. And so by putting the two of them together, I'm saying I'm making a statement. I'm saying, yeah, this is like that. <laughs> Only it's different. <laughs> Well, it didn't convince a lot of people. It convinced a few. There was Doug Kay and Steve Gilmore. Both had pot. They all, I think they both had actually, they were thinking of them as radio shows, but once the podcasting model was out there, they said, oh yeah, well, this is exactly what I do. And then they went that way. And uh, anyway, it was an iterative process and I've written about it many times. And so that, it's the sort of like having an idea initially being willing to throw it out there with no idea how it's going to turn out, and then continuing the process until you feel you have something that's workable. So in podcasting, that was up to the point where we had enclosures, and I had an app that was both a podcast broadcaster and a podcast consumer. And that's it. Those were the basic ingredients. You needed a format. We had that. You needed a way to make the content and you needed a way to read the content or get it and listen to it in this case. But then what you need to really drive the whole thing is compelling. You need, you know, Mr. White <laughs> and, and how he gets cancer and decides that he wants to leave a legacy to his family. And so he goes into to meth because he's a chemistry teacher and he makes the best meth Anyway, what a fucking incredible premise, right? Plus, it's not enough just to have a great premise. You have to have great actors, great writers, um, and then a style. The great thing about Breaking Bad is they had this fantastic style of doing TV. <coughs> and so they would give you little puzzles that lasted a while, sometimes a whole season. You see a, te a burnt teddy bear floating in a swimming pool in the first episode, and it isn't until the last episode of the season that you understand what the hell the burnt teddy bear is doing in a pool. <laughs> you see, it's just awesome. So, yeah, so it's like a showrunner. Now, I don't think we have a vocabulary for that. And for, for now, I think you basically have to settle for invented, even though we understand that that is not an accurate term. All right, so how long have I been doing this? Ay, ay, ay. What is it, 34 minutes? And 30, about to be 35. My God, that's a long fucking podcast, I have to say. So, But it's been a while, so there you go. All right, well, talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.